The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. It's great to be back in the studio. Uh, I missed a couple of weeks. I've uh, been busy with my kids and some other things going on, but um, I'm happy to be back today. I've been thinking a lot uh, since I last spoke with everybody about things that are going on in this country, about the destruction of the healthcare system, and really our society as a whole. The transgender ideology, which is just an evil, corrupt thing that really underscores just how horribly our medical institutions have fallen and that they're partaking in this evil act where we're mutilating uh, young kids uh, who are confused about their gender and that this issue is being elevated to a political level to try and achieve uh, what I believe to be this Marxist agenda where we're trying to break down the United States. We're trying to discredit our founding uh, by discrediting the founding fathers. They own slaves, all this sorts of nonsense, uh, pointing out the flaws in the human condition and marching us ever closer to a more totalitarian uh, controlling government. Healthcare is a tool that's being used to implement that agenda. And nothing made it more clear to me than the whole experience we had through COVID. And we've been talking about that week after week on this show. And at the end of the day, I'm here to make the case against socialized medicine. This idea that a one size fits all government run healthcare system is beneficial, uh, is, is even possible to deliver care. And as a physician, who's been working in the medical industry and in science for over 30 years now. It's hard to believe it when I say that. I've seen inside, uh, from the inside, just how flawed it is. And medicine is made up of human beings that are sinners, that are flawed, uh, that are uh, filled with all of the deadly sins of pride and greed and gluttony and all the rest of it. And there's always this idea that we need some benevolent government to control things, to manage things, sort of put the smart people in charge and let them make all the decisions for us and that we would somehow get to a utopia. And one of the most important things I think I learned when I became a doctor uh, and started taking care of patients in the real world is that utopia isn't possible. There are problems out there that are unsolvable. My uh, good friend, Christopher Miles, who died uh, not too long ago of a brain cancer at age 20 uh, before my eyes, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. I was intimately involved with the family that I was very close to, and I had to go through that. Um, my good friend, Christopher Couples, just passed of cancer, young man in his 40s, just getting married. It isn't fair, and life is tough. And one of the things that I've learned is that the people who have faith in Jesus Christ and faith in God and that there is another world coming, those are the people that have tremendous strength. And whether you believe in God, whether you believe in an afterlife or not, the people who believe 
objectively have better, more fulfilling and happier lives. And I realized that when I was taking care of patients that I needed a strength to go on. When I came across patients that were having uh, unfixable problems, I just had a young man with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. I did a hip replacement and we talked about him on the show. He came from Colorado and you know, his, his story is, is heartbreaking. And how do you endure? You know, and I, I learned a long time ago from a very wise man. He was, uh, a pediatric surgeon. And I remember thinking to myself, he was so old that he was already a surgeon on D-Day. He was there, uh, on D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. And he was one of the first people who sort of explained to me the importance of Christianity. And I remember I was in an interview for, uh, uh, gaining entrance into medical school. And most of you are aware of my story. I applied five times before I finally was accepted to medical school. This was my fifth try. I was in this interview and he asked me something about religion and being a, a college age kid or, you know, a younger person. I had it in my mind that religion was responsible for all the wars. And if we could just get rid of religion, then there would be peace on earth. And I said it out loud to this man and he said, well, you know, that's one interpretation of it. But when my grown son, he's telling me about his grown son was killed in a fire. He doesn't didn't know any other way that he could have endured that tragedy in his life if he didn't have his faith to back up, uh, you know, to fall back on. And I just remember thinking to myself, well, you know, why would I get involved in a conversation about religion or politics in this big interview? Now, thankfully, he didn't hold it against me, and I was accepted into the medical school, and that was the beginning of my journey into medicine. I also want to wish everybody a belated happy Easter. Uh, to me, Easter has become one of the most important holidays of the year. And the reason is because I have had this epiphany that... Everything that I find to be good and true in this world, the advent of Judeo-Christian values, the concept that our rights come from God and not given by man, the beginning of documenting rights in the Magna Carta uh, in the 1300s, which was the first time that human rights were written down on a piece of paper. This was all predicated on uh, religious uh, beliefs. Um, I'm not here to try and convince anybody uh, or to proselytize anybody about Christianity or religion because I'm still uh, heavily involved in my own journey to understanding. Uh, I can tell you that my my turn towards Christianity and towards faith was primarily uh, encouraged by what I was seeing in my professional life and having a difficult time trying to deal with all of the difficult problems I saw in medicine. I just talked about Christopher Miles as a big one. He, he He's on my mind at all times. This young man had everything going for him. He was handsome. He was tall. He's a big football player. He's had the world in front of him. He's being recruited to college. And then one day, it all it all changed and he got this brain tumor and within two years he was gone and i think to myself uh my heart breaks for his family my heart breaks for christopher who didn't have the chance to live a full life and i ask myself how do we how do we deal with this and in my own life i started reading the bible uh, when i was younger and I, I was still pretty old i was probably in my 
late 20s, early 30s before I read the entire Bible. And what I found was there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's also a lot of stuff that's tough to understand. And there's a lot of tough stuff. You know, the Old Testament is got a lot of draconian stuff in it. There's a lot of being held accountable that people don't like. And I started reading C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis makes the case for God. He set out to prove there was no God and he started doing his research and turns out he was convinced that there was God. And for me, the biggest impetus as a scientist and somebody who has a hard time with faith in general, at least I used to have a hard time with it, um, the idea that the disciples of Christ, first century witnesses of the life, the death and resurrection were able to endure horrific persecution. And I always think to myself, what would compel somebody to do that unless they truly observe the life, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that to me is the most compelling evidence. You, there are so many other things uh, that make the case for Christ and for the existence of our benevolent God that include the concept that you had the Roman Empire that was the most powerful force on the earth that was committed to stamping out Jesus Christ and eliminating his teaching from the world and to eliminate his threat to the state. And within a few hundred years, Christianity was the religion of Rome and St. Peter's Basilica was right there in the heart of Rome. And it begs the question, how did this happen? How did that how did that happen where you had this powerful state that was trying to wipe Christianity and the teachings of Jesus Christ and the man himself off the face of the earth? And yet within a few hundred years, you had it as the religion of Rome and St. Peter's Basilica sitting there right in the heart of Rome. It's a really powerful representation of the life and death of Jesus Christ. We see that before Christianity, the world functioned on a predicate of might made right. It was basically powerful people were able to control land and people, and you had warring between different factions, uh, these warlords, uh, and it's, it was worldwide. This is the way the world functioned, and at the end of the day, might made right, and might or sorry, this sort of lawless, uh, powerful control of things, it affected people's lives because people were not encouraged to follow their dreams, to develop, to grow, to create. You know, if you think of somebody that thought to themselves, you know what, I think I'll plant an orchard of apples and then my family would be able to have apples. Uh, but they would make the decision not to do that because they would realize all I'm going to do is do all the work to put together these apples and then some strong person's going to move in and take it from me. And it wasn't until the establishment of Western civilization, the documentation of human rights and the rule of law, where we protected property rights. And so that encouraged people to do things, to grow things, understanding that they own property that these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness came from God. And that encouraged 
economic growth. And then you combine that with the concept of capitalism. Capitalism is a voluntary arrangement between buyer and seller that's good for the buyer and good for the seller. And when you have, you know, in the case of the earth now, we have 700 billion people or more all operating in their best interests. It is not possible for any single person or any group of people to possibly understand all the wants, the desires, the needs, the problems, the issues of all of those billions of people on the planet. But capitalism allows an interaction for all of those people so that all of those things are taken into account. And so that when we look at our economy, when we allow free market capitalism to flourish, people create wealth. They create opportunity, they innovate, and they make the world better around them. By creating this wealth, they raise the standard of living for everybody. So I'm always amazed when people talk to me about income inequality. Well, Bill Gates, who I don't think is a good guy, but he he developed a company that has made him wildly wealthy, much more wealthy than I'll ever be. But my life is is in some ways I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have used Bill Gates as a, as an example. But the point is, you got somebody who created something that the rest of us use in computers and all that thing. My life is enriched through the computers in a way uh, that that um, you know is hard to articulate. Uh, but I'm able to utilize these computers in my own life to help my life in terms of education and business and all sorts of things, entertainment. And uh, Bill Gates is rich because of it. Now, there's massive income inequality there, but that doesn't change the moral um, perspective on the fact that he's his life is better and my life is better. Now, he's done some evil things uh, with the money and power that he's obtained since, but I think we can still see the point. Now, this argument that I always hear from the left about, you know, they'll talk about a free market healthcare system is one that is based on, on the profit motive. This, this false narrative of the profit motive, it's really infuriating to me and it still goes on. It was going on when I was a young person in school. And it's still going on with the people coming out. And I'm going to show you how profit motive is moral. Profit motive is the way it works. And I want to start off with the brilliant Milton Friedman on Phil Donahue many years ago, uh, where he was asked about greed and capitalism. And I want you to, it's a long clip. It's about two minutes and 45 seconds, but I don't really care about that. I know it's you're not supposed to play long clip clips when you're doing a podcast like this, but I don't care. We're going to listen to this because I think it's really important and it's it was life changing for me. This the great Milton Friedman, um, Pulitzer or sorry, award winning Nobel Prize winning economist on the Phil Donahue show. When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries. Uh, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you when you see the greed and the concentration of power within, don't, aren't you ever? Did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism? And whether greed's a good idea to run on? Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? 
Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward, not virtue, as much as ability to manipulate the system. And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. Just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. That is that is one of the greatest clips of all time. You have to listen to it over and over. It's the great Milton Friedman on Phil Donahue's show many years ago. And he really just covered everything in a nutshell there. This is the fact of life. And now that I'm old enough to have been through academia, I've been through medical school, I've been inside of medicine, I've seen all of this stuff. I understand that these human conditions, these people working in self-interest is true everywhere. What a free market capitalist healthcare system is does is it empowers the consumer. When we cede all of this power over to the state, we see that they cede power to people that are not the smartest people in the world. In many cases, they're the, the worst kind of people in the world. Uh, and you lose all your ability to make decisions over your own life. And I'm going to prove it to you today. Now, When we, when I was a kid, you know, my father used to talk about growing, you know, developing his children and he, he taught me about honesty, integrity, accountability, being a good teammate, uh, that relationships were important. He taught me, as did my mother, that true, true blessing, true peace, true joy in this world comes from giving. And my father used to tell me the best way to get in this life is to give first. And I've sort of tried to live by that. He also told me, and I think my father was fairly open-minded for the time. You know, when I was young, it was kind of like, you have to go to college, you have to get a degree in mathematics, you have to get a degree in law, uh, you have to get a, you know, you, you know, you have to get a degree in business, you know, something really meaningful and that, you know, pursuing things like acting or some of these other things uh, were not, um, you know, not going to make you economically prosperous in the long run. And I have sort of changed my opinion on that as I've gotten older. My father was was open-minded to that, and he said, listen, 
you're going to be spending most of the rest of your life at work. And he goes, the only way that you're going to be able to do it is you have to find something that you love to do. And you need to educate yourself and you constantly need to make yourself better. And when you try for certain things, you have to have a backup plan and you have to know what that means. So if you want to be a professional athlete, you know, you have to work harder than you can ever imagine. Just like if you want to be successful in anything and you have to understand things can happen. You might get injured and not might, might not be able to play. You might just not have the talent. That's what happened for me. I just got to that level and I just, you know, as my friend Mark Hashimoto used to tell me, if you're not big enough, you're not fast enough and you're not strong enough, you're just not going to make it. And so I found that out. Uh, but he said you need to have a backup plan. Um, we want to raise our children to be good people. This is what it used to be, to be caring, to have empathy, to, uh, you, you know, work well with other people, to have loyalty, generosity. These were virtues that we used to instill in our children. Um, and now when I talk to my kids about what they want to do, sometimes they'll say things like, I want to be a social media influencer. And I just can't wrap my mind around it. It's like, what in the world does that add to this, this place? Um, what moral, uh, positive is, is being, uh, being played out there. It's very difficult for me to understand. I'm trying to have an open mind in this new world that they live in, but I'm watching kids borrow ridiculous amounts of money to get degrees in things like gender studies. And then when they get out of school, they have all this debt and they're stunned to find that they can't find a job that's going to pay them enough to pay off these student loans. And then they claim victim status, uh, finding any reason under the sun to say that, that they're not being able to be successful because of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, whatever it is these days. And uh, this is the problem that we find ourselves in. And ultimately, I believe this has been an existential threat implemented by the left to break down our society, to undermine Judeo-Christian values by making it difficult for people to even talk about it without being labeled a, a hater or a bigot. Um, or, or, or crazy, you know, every single TV show you watch, every single movie you see, you watch anybody who is religious or clergy or whatever is always going to be painted in a negative light because we've had this decades long effort to try and discredit our founding fathers, which you can't say founding fathers anymore because it's both misogynistic and uh, our founding fathers, some of them had slaves, and therefore everything they said or did is to be discounted. When the reality is they were born into a world where slavery was the norm, and they worked to lay the foundation to end slavery. And the brilliance of our founding fathers in constructing a society that had separation of powers, that understood that our rights uh, were came from God and that we were endowed by our creator with these things, with these rights. This was not, uh, they, they had no intention of eliminating, uh, our religious beliefs from the public square. Uh, <clears throat> and that, you know, that is something that's been bastardized by the left. Uh, this idea of separation of church and state, it was uh, a letter from Thomas Jefferson to, um, to, um, a religious group, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, <clears throat> basically letting them know that they didn't have to fear uh, any um, attack on their church. But 
Thomas Jefferson never intended to eliminate religion from from the public square in the founding of this country. And our morality is a key aspect, a key factor in maintaining uh, our republic. Now, it's under attack. Medicine is one of the ways that they're uh, using to control us. And we've been talking about it on the show a lot, right? They have these appeals to authority. They designate experts like the Fauci's of the world. Uh, you know, we have people trying to getting or that are getting confirmed for the Supreme Court saying, well, I don't know what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. Uh, we had the brilliant Marty McCari talking about uh, misinformation. You know, that's a big thing today is this person needs to be eliminated from the public square because they're spreading misinformation. I myself have been a victim of this, even though when we go back and we roll the tape, which we are going to do on a future show, roll the tape on everything I said in the past couple of years, turning out to be 100 percent correct. Uh, however, I was persecuted for it, as were many other people. Uh, we have cancellation. Um, that's going on right now. It still goes on. It's still going on at Twitter. Uh, my Twitter has been uh, stifled again. It has been for years and years. When Elon first took over, it opened up for a little bit. But now they're back to tamping it down. And I'm convinced that there are powers that be that will not allow uh, people who think like me, whether they be teachers or lawyers or doctors or police officers or whatever, to gain a, a, a following on social media, which is our modern public square, because uh, we don't agree with the narrative coming from the state. Uh, we know they're memory holding information, so it's difficult to go and find things. Um, I, you know, Google is an absolute waste right now because everything you find on it is just pure propaganda, and they've they've gotten to the point where, in many cases, it's just outright lying. Uh, in medicine, they always talk about best practices. You know, we have best practices. And what they're really trying to do is prevent rogue doctors from reading literature and saying things like, gosh, I think rather than giving you remdesivir, this new medicine that doesn't seem to be working so well, maybe I should give you hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And this is just heresy. It can't be allowed. And so they come up with this phrase, best practices, so that they can justify canceling people who mention this stuff. And we've pointed out Dr. Little and others who uh, temporarily, thank, thankfully, lost his license because he treated patients with ivermectin. And then they like to talk about evidence-based, right? And we saw this over the last couple of years where, you know, somebody like me wants to go and publish a study uh, on something that's not approved by the narrative. I don't get the resources that I need to be able to to uh, publish that study. And then uh, many of these journal uh, air, uh, publications will not even review your papers. There's a control uh, of our scientific community uh, controlling the science that we're allowed to look at and that we, that we create. And, you know, you can see this. Um, with climate change, you know, climate change is uh, something that it just has no foundation in actual science. Um, and yet we've reconfigured our entire society to the point of, you know, banning fossil fuels. And, you know, we were we were energy independent just a few years ago and then Biden took office and he shut it down. And now, you know, we're in a big mess. Um, and then uh I want you to kind of look at the great Thomas Sowell, another 
a Nobel Prize winning economist, you know, back when the Nobel Prize actually meant something and it wasn't uh, politically driven as much. Uh, but I want you to hear Thomas Sowell talking about um, climate change. What do you make of global warming? I think it's a classic example of the need for crusades. Now, people, many people are shocked by these emails. I'm not at all shocked by them. I read, I read the original UN study years ago, and I was just curious as to how they were going to deal with the question that the uh, temperatures went up first, and then there was the increase in carbon carbon dioxide. Right. Because you can't say that A causes B uh, uh, if B happened first. And so I read this, and I could see they were they were tiptoeing through the tulips and the way they phrased things and so forth. They they couldn't confront that, and and now we're finding out uh, that they they knew darn well they couldn't deal with all the evidence. What do you so, think of global? So this is amazing to me. You know, this is a, a while back, and the great Thomas Sowell pointing out that you know your your hypothesis is that man made. CO2 is causing the temperatures to rise, but when they look at the data, the temperatures rose first and then the CO2 rose. So how do you deal with that? And the answer is they don't. They use these tactics. They memory hole information. They cancel people. Uh, they, they use fact checkers to try and throw you off the scent. Uh, and then they just move on with their policies. And it's just utterly ridiculous. You know, nowadays you can, I, well, at least people in the circles that I run understand that you can use an electric car, but you have to understand that the electric car, uh, causes just as much contamination of the earth using their definitions of contamination as just burning fossil fuels. It's just a, a sleight of hand that they do. And when people try to point out the obvious, um, you know, they're they're canceled. And this is the dangerous time that we're living in is because uh, people are being persecuted and canceled for speaking the truth. And we're living in very strange times. And it's, you know, as George Orwell talked about, speaking the truth is courage these days. And I got to be honest with you, when I come and I do this show, I have anxiety about the fact that, you know, I'm going to be attacked even more than I already am just for pointing out things that are out there. I'm Listen, I'm not the guy who's making up this stuff. I'm just pointing out things like, hey, the UN says that the temperature rose first and then the CO2 came up. How how is it then that man-made global warming is is anthropogenic global warming is happening? It just doesn't make any sense and they're not uh, compelled to answer the question. And I'm going to show you how they tiptoe around the facts and the people who carry the narrative of the state. They're never held to any standard. And we're going to go to commercial. When I come back, I'm going to show you just how the left uh, gets to ignore facts when confronted with them. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. 
It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio, and I'm making the case against socialized medicine today. We were just talking about the fact that people on the left never have to live up to the data, and uh, I was just pointing out that the great Thomas Sowell, uh, read the UN report on man-made climate change and noted that how are you explaining the fact that temperatures rose before CO2 rose? If your hypothesis is that man-made production of carbon uh, dioxide is causing the increase in global warming, it doesn't make any sense that the warming happened first. And they just move on. And here I am. I'm living my whole life, and we've been playing this scam I noticed that for several years there, especially before Elon Musk got a hold of Twitter, that there was just no talk of all the the junk science surrounding global warming or the science that was out there that contradicted the concept of man-made uh, global warming. It just sort of disappeared. They memory hold it. And then when Elon got uh, Twitter back, we're starting to see a little bit more of this. And uh, it's really quite stunning. Now, uh, I want you to listen to John Kerry being uh, at a congressional hearing, being questioned by Tom Massey uh, on climate change. And I want you to hear how this interaction goes. What's the consensus on parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere? About 406, 406 today. Okay, 406. Are you aware? 350 that- being the level that scientists have said is dangerous. Okay, are you aware? 350 is dangerous. Wow. Are you aware that since mammals have walked the planet, the average has been over a 1,000 parts per million? Yeah, but we weren't walking the planet. It's. Um, let me just share with you that we now know that definitively at no point during the least the past 800,000 years has atmospheric CO2 been as high as it is today? The reason you chose 800,000 years ago is because for 200 million years before that, it was greater than the, than it is today. And I'm going to say for the record... Yeah, but there weren't human beings. I mean, there was a different world, folks. We didn't have 7 oh, billion people. So how did it get to 2,000 parts per million if we humans weren't here? Because there were all kinds of geologic events happening on Earth which spewed did up... Did geology stop when we got on the planet? Mr. Chairman, I, I, this is just not a serious conversation. Your, your testimony is not serious. I mean, it's unbelievable to me. It's, it's why they will not debate. It's why we can't have open platform. It's why in medicine they want to have a – one of the reasons that it's also about money. But one of the reasons that they want to have this – one size fits all government control of healthcare is that they get they get to control the information. There is an open debate. If they say wear masks in the hospital, and somebody like me wants to go to the hospital and say, "Hey, I have all this data 
that suggest that wearing the masks is silly, they won't even talk to me. The CDC stated that it's in effect. And by the way, they're also paying us to do this. So it was just it was just a, a um end of debate there, there's no debate they won't allow the discussion and this obviously is not good for science because now we have the Cochrane library the Cochrane library for all the people that are trying to um, fact check me out there the Cochrane library which is the definitive repository of scientific scientific information just published the meta-analysis of the study on mass and they do not work and this by the way includes the N95 mass and I will point out that I was saying that back in 2020 on this show because I always endeavor to tell you guys the truth. Now, this is the thing that really got me started on wanting to um, wanting to uh, talk about this subject was listening to this student, Charlie Kirk, who is the founder and and runs Turning Point USA, which is a club for. Uh, I believe it's high schools and and um, college students where they have conservative um, um, groups and they uh, basically promote conservative ideas and try to have con- uh, conservative speakers on campus to talk about things. And, of course, they're very much persecuted. But I like to listen to these shows because uh, these young kids that are, are already partially on their way to indoctrination uh, to leftist ideology – ask uh, Charlie Kirk questions. And this particular kid was at one of Charlie Kirk's speeches and was asking a question on single payer. And I want you guys to listen to this take. I got... Commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We rec- Sorry, that's for later. That's uh, That's an oath that these people are taking, medical students now are taking to diversity, equity, and inclusion which is kind of scary. Uh, this is the the clip. Listen. Uh, hello, Charlie Kirk. Um, I, I've watched, a, I've been a long-time viewer. Um, uh, I don't always agree with you, um, but certainly on this particular issue. Um, so I'm a proponent of universal health care. Uh, this will be Medicare for all. I, I imagine, I mean, I, I know you're not. You believe in the value of the for-profit health care system. So I guess my question is, like, your argument is that the for-profit health care system um, – uh, I guess serves as a, you know, for innovation. I want to know, like, what innovation does the health, does the health, ins- private for profit health insurance provide to yeah, Medico? Um, so I just want to make sure I understand your position. Are you arguing for a single payer or for the government ownership and running of the healthcare industry? Uh, single payer, I guess Medicare for all. Got Spending it. So, everyone else. Yeah, that, that is, that's a gateway to eventually getting to the government run healthcare system. But your critique is probably not wrong. I have plenty of problems with our current healthcare system, right? Some are driven solely by profit. Some are driven by just bad regulation and honestly not enough profit drive. So I'll give you a great example of a fruit of the free market of the last 10 or 15 years, okay? LASIK. LASIK eye surgery used to be considered a fringe idea that many people considered to be unfounded and not proven. Insurance largely does not cover LASIK. Entrepreneurs got into the industry, and LASIK is now the most performed eye surgery in America with great results and great benefits. The price has gone down and the quality has gone up. Now, that's one example of many. Okay. So you hear this kid, he's still using these vernacular of the left about the profit motive. And we just talked about, we opened the show with the great Milton Friedman talking to Phil Donahue about 
if if you're going to have these angels administer things, where are we going to find them? The Russian commissars, you think that they're uh, going to be benevolent? I mean, listen, I was just having the conversation with somebody yesterday about, you know, as I'm getting older in life, sometimes the fire in my belly to do stuff seems to be um, less, you know, and I, when I think about going through medical school and all that work that I had to put in, I don't think I could do it again. Um, I mean, I remember my my feelings and my thought processes at the time about I was very respectful of the fact that I was admitted into medical school, especially after five tries and all the work, three MCATs that I took, going back to grad school, learning how to read, finding out I had a reading disability. I mean, all this effort that I put into it. And then I remember thinking to myself as a moral person, as somebody who's going to be entrusted with an important duty that is my obligation to learn this material as as well as I could learn it. I owe it to my future patients to know everything. So I didn't attack this the way, you know, a lot of us attack high school or college, you know, where you're just trying to, you know, cram information, get through the tests. Um, I'm not a crammer, as my reading disability taught me, and it actually ended up being a blessing, another one of these strange things that happen in life. Since I knew I had no ability to cram because of my reading disability, I made sure that I read often. And I read multiple times, uh, which served me very well because I really learned the material. But I studied, you know, four to eight hours or more every single day for two years, except for 12 days. There were 12 days that I didn't read that much. Uh, but every other day I did, every six weeks I was being tested. And these tests were so painful. I felt like my entire life was predicated on every test, every question I missed. I thought my dreams had ended. It was a very pressure-filled time. It was a very difficult time. And listen, I'm not asking anybody to cry for me. I mean, it's the greatest blessing of my life to be able to be a doctor. And my job is so awesome and so fulfilling now. And the ability to help people is the greatest thing ever. I'm just saying that it was a lot of work. And I don't know. No, I know for a fact there's no way I could have put that effort in if I didn't have some sort of profit motive there that I knew that if I was good at what I did, that I would make decent money. At the time, I was not interested in being wealthy, but uh, I wanted to have enough money to pay bills. I know my parents often didn't, and that was a source of a lot of angst in my household when I was growing up, and I didn't want to have that. Um, but... There was, you know, a lifestyle that I was looking forward to. There was, I was very insecure about my reading disability and I really felt like a stupid person my whole life. And I remember thinking to myself, I got to grow up and be something like a doctor. So I get some automatic street cred so that when I meet people, they won't realize I'm as stupid as I seem because I'll be a doctor and they'll give me some deference. And the reality is that does happen. When I walk in and I'm a doctor, I do get some automatic street cred. And that was something that I wanted. Um, and the point is, is that people and human beings operate in their own self-interest. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Working hard to provide for your family, to make sure that your kids are closed and that they can be educated and that they can you know, have things is an endeavor that all of us want to undergo. So this idea that 
that some entity is profit based and then some other entity government isn't profit based is the biggest joke in the history of the world. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. And I feel like with this clip, I should not have to ever hear a leftist talk to me about capitalist free market healthcare being profit driven while a Medicare for all is some benevolent, uh, means of, of, uh, implementing, uh, healthcare because it's the biggest joke in the world. And I want to, uh, have you listen to Russell Brand talking about the pharmaceutical companies on, uh, Bill Marshall. Listen to this. mentioned it, I'm English, and you know that politeness is our fundamental religion. <laughs> but they do pertain to this issue, so may I say something? Please, please, if they please, inconvenience no, you, I, I'll stop saying them. The pandemic created at least 40 new far, big pharma billionaires. Pharmaceutical corporations like Moderna and Pfizer made $1,000 of profit every second from the COVID-19 vaccine. More than two-thirds of Congress received campaign funding from pharmaceutical companies in the 2020 election. Pfizer chairman Albert Baller told Time magazine in July 2020 that his company was developing a COVID vaccine for the good of humanity, not for money. And of course, Pfizer made a hundred billion dollars okay. in profit right. in 2022. Right. And, and may I just mention that finally, and these are, this is also a fact, that you, the American public, funded the development of that. The German fund, uh, public funded the BioNTech uh, vaccine. When it came to the profits, they took the profits. When it came to the funding, you paid for the funding. If you have right. an economic system in which pharmaceutical companies benefit hugely from medical emergencies, where a military-industrial okay. complex benefits from war, where energy companies benefit from energy crises, you are going to These generate right. states of perpetual crisis yes. for the interests of ordinary people. Uh, yes. uh, separate from the interests of the elite. Well, I mean, if that doesn't say it all, you know, I probably uh, don't agree with Russell Brand politically on a lot of different issues. But he was dropping some heavy truth bombs right there. And every single word he said was 100% factual. Don't ever talk to me about the idea that government is somehow this benevolent administer of health care. They are in it to make money. They are in it to uh, have political power. COVID is just a prime example of it, how it was because it was so grotesque and the avarice was just so over the top. And honestly, the evil was so... Um, so over the top, I'm still having issues when I look at our medical industrial complex and I think about all of the bad things that are being done. When COVID was going on, there were there were people that had all kinds of opinions, medical doctors, uh, Dr. Maloney, Dr. McCullough, myself and others that were sharing legitimate scientific points of views and we were censored. We were canceled. We were threatened, threatened by these grotesque medical boards still being threatened. And what happens when the data comes out? It shows that the things that we were saying were a hundred percent right. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine have research out there that show that they do work. Rendesivir doesn't work and is in fact harmful, causes renal failure in a, a very high number of patients. They, uh, prevented early treatment hospitals that were controlling their employed physicians. They were told if you say anything negative about a vaccine or a mask, 
that you were, you know, going to risk losing your license. This was coming from the medical boards. And now we know that there is data demonstrating significant deleterious effects on these young children in schools that we masked for two plus years for no reason whatsoever, because the meta analysis that was done uh, by the Cochrane Library confirm the same thing that we've known about masks forever. So this was not like new information that we just learned. The data that we gathered since the COVID outbreak just confirmed what we already knew about these masks. And let's face it, at the end of the day, we all know it was stupid. 200 years from now, people are going to look back at us wearing a mask to our table at a restaurant, taking the mask off to eat, putting it on to go to the bathroom, coming back to the table, taking the mask off to eat again, and then putting the mask on to leave. It's so utterly ridiculous that it defies belief, but people are so battered. They're so attacked. We're living in this evil world right now where we're not allowed to speak truth. And it's just so uh, frightening to me. And medicine is a place where we have to have open thought. We have to have freedom of ideas. Listen, if you're out there and you're saying things that are stupid, you're going to lose credibility among your peers and eventually you will be marginalized. And that is the thing that holds us to account. But to say, like, I have to shut that person down because I don't like the information, it blows my mind. We see John Kerry. He gets to the point where his ridiculous assertion is just blown out of the water and he can't defend himself. And he's like, well, this is just not a serious conversation. And he's thinking to himself, you know, darn it, I'm John Kerry. Why isn't somebody shutting this guy down? I don't have to answer questions. I mean, let's look at Governor Whitner, uh, the Michigan governor who shut down her state uh, and and managed to get reelected. I, I have my own ideas about that. But uh, let's listen to her when she's confronted with the data from an expert. Michigan was one of the last states to lift a cap on public gatherings in June of 2021. By comparison, Florida lifted its cap in September of 2020. But the death rate for Florida from June of 20 to June of 21 was 39.6 per 100,000. The death rate for Michigan was 97.3 per 100,000, so more than double. Why did Florida do so much better without the cap than Michigan did with the cap? I've seen a lot of reports about some of the numbers that you've just cited from Florida and perhaps the, the lack of confidence in the, you know, in the um, accuracy of them. I don't know. I'm not going to weigh in on their policies. I'm going to tell you, I listen to the best experts in the world. I mean, are you kidding me? I, I, I Like, that one is its too much for me to take. The CDC is a government-designated expert. The rest of us have to shut our pie holes about anything because the CDC says it, even though they're wrong on just about everything, whether it be masks, the Wuhan lab, vaccines, the mortality rate, on and on and on. And they, they get to be wrong. They never lose their status as designated expert. And then when Governor Whitmer is confronted with the fact that Florida, which opened and didn't engage in these lockdowns, had a dramatically lower death rate than Michigan, she's just like, well, I don't trust the numbers and I, you know, I do what I want based on the experts. This is unbelievable to me. Uh, we have to say absolutely not. I mean, 
I'm talking to my friends in Congress right now. One of the most important things that we have to do right now is get honest doctors out from under the thumb of these corrupt medical boards and these corrupt agencies that are run by political leftists that are working to uh, wield power and money. We just heard Russell Brand talk about how the government used these three-letter agencies and these medical boards to push their agenda, which made these pharmaceutical companies wildly wealthy uh, and, and billions and billions of dollars. And a lot of that money was then given to these people in the three-letter agencies uh, and to Congress, okay? So spare me the, oh, you are just wanting a profit-motivated uh, healthcare system. No, what I want is a healthcare system that's accountable to the people. And I can tell you, as somebody who's been doing this for 30 years, treating patients like customers and accommodating their needs is the hardest thing you can possibly imagine. I have, uh, you know, one of the things I do at my practice when people come in, I have my front desk stand to greet them in. And when it was first brought to my attention that we should do this, it was done by uh, one of my marketing people who worked for me, who used to work at Ritz-Carlton. And they said that that was one of the things they did to send a nonverbal signal to their clients that, that they were valued. And I thought to myself at the time, yeah, you know, that's kind of a hotel thing, but it's not really a medicine thing. But then I started doing it. And it was unbelievable. I, I just, I loved it. And so I was like, okay, that's our thing. When people come in, rather than, you know, we go to a lot of medical practices these days, right? And you get the sliding glass door that opens, they hand you the chart and then they close it behind you. You're sitting out there filling out paperwork. You're not sure what you're doing. It's, hey, can I ask a question? But there's nobody really here. And you're wondering, do they even know I'm out here? I don't do that. When my patients come into my office, my front desk stands to greet them to say to them you matter to us you we care about you we're here for you and do you know how hard it was for me to get people to stand up my own employees they wouldn't stand they refused to stand i had to get cameras to keep an eye on the front desk i had to have training there were people that were going and getting doctor's notes saying that they couldn't stand they physically couldn't stand and i'm thinking to myself People just don't understand how much effort goes into delivering quality care to people and to accommodating the needs of individuals. The reason that I do it is what? Yes, it's a profit motive. Um, I want to deliver great care. I want to earn market share and I want to gain a profit. But at the same time, I'm also a moral person. I take care of people. I do tons of charity. Um, I've taken care of people that have paid for uh, one of my procedures. It didn't work the way I wanted to. And I did another procedure, even though the patient didn't have any money because it was the right thing to do. And I wanted to do it. That is what matters because it's my reputation on the line. When you're some faceless bureaucrat, which employed physicians are, they're faceless bureaucrats. They don't have power. They're being told best practices. They don't get to make individual decisions. They are told by the heads of the hospitals, how they will act. You will not prescribe ivermectin. You will not prescribe hydroxychloroquine. You will prescribe uh, remdesivir. You will tell them that masks and vaccines are the only way. Um, you will not promote vitamin C or vitamin D or any of these other things. This is insane to me. And you ask, well, what, what other proof do you have that the medical care has fallen? I want you to hear this. This is a... Um, detransition rally uh, and you've got a young girl here who was mutilated by our professional medical health care system I want you to listen to this 
awareness rally in Sacramento, California, with Layla James, who actually just spoke. Um, and it's the first time she spoke in a rally like this. It was really powerful. Layla, first of all, why did you decide to speak? I think it's really important to give a platform to these issues. Um, us detransitioners, we're not taking it seriously. There's not resources specifically for us, like there was on um, transition. And it was just such an easy pipeline to fall into. I had a lot of comorbid, comorbid um, mental health conditions that were just not looked into, not assessed, not treated. I was just throttled into transition um, at 13. Wow. At 13, I was able to have a full double mastectomy. Um, I was only in eighth grade. I've only been recently able to get this. And I've heard um, more people say that, oh, you might regret this. This has no meaning over this possum tattoo compared to getting my breast removed at 13. I'm here the detransitioners aware. So she had her breasts removed at the age of 13. Now, I'm really f- furious. I'll go around and I'll talk about the fact that that these procedures are going on and people on the left, no, no, that's not happening. It is absolutely happening. And these things are not happening at these, uh, you know, hole-in-the-wall clinics. These are happening at places like Vanderbilt and Boston University and San Francisco. They're happening at major academic institutions. You're cutting the breasts off of healthy 13-year-old people, physically healthy people that have confusion about gender, and that's okay. But if you say like, hey, these masks don't work, that you're going to lose your license, folks. We are off the path right now, and it's going to take some courage. There's two genders out there, men and women. Women should or men should not be competing in women's sports. There's basic truths in this world that we need to get back to, or we're going to lose everything. The healthcare system is a tool that is working against us. The uh, government takeover of healthcare is nearly complete, and we need to start moving it in the other direction, or we're going to be in big trouble. The case against single payer and government run healthcare, they're not angels. They are not people that are interested in your well being. They have their own agendas and a free market healthcare system that puts you in charge where you can choose your doctor, where you can choose to leave your doctor if you're not getting the care that you think you deserve, you're able to do it. And that's the best way to make sure that you get the greatest health care at the lowest price with the greatest value. I mean, when you talk about lowering price, I charge as much as I can, but if somebody across the street is doing it for less, I got to lower my price. And that's what encourages us to figure out how to do it efficiently and at the lowest price possible where we can still stay in business. I hope I made the case against single-payer, socialized, government-run healthcare for you guys today. Again, happy belated Easter to everyone. He is risen. Uh, do your part. Keep yourself educated. In the end, it's in God's hands. Let's be good to one another. Let's love one another. And let's try to be positive, uh, positive forces in this world. I will see you next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Everybody have a great day. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.